We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. here with Alex Barutha. We actually recorded this episode late Tuesday night from the studio at Rotowire Global Headquarters, so that would be why the audio you're about to hear in a minute or so will improve dramatically in terms of quality. Uh, we actually signed a deal with Dash Radio recently to air one episode per week of our podcast on their platform. So in order to do that, we have to tweak the intro a little bit. It's more of a, a radio format for them, so that's why you're getting a separate intro now for the podcast, but this will likely be the case uh, once a week uh, for the foreseeable future. So excited to get started with Dash, and you know, hopefully that, that helps us grow our audience a little bit. Anyway, Alex and I touched on a, a bunch of topics in terms of what's going on inside the bubble, injuries to guys like Marvin Bagley, Justice Winslow, neither of whom will play 
at all in the remainder of the 2019-20 season. Had some good injury news as well, uh, kind of gearing up for the scrimmages that are set to begin on Wednesday and run through Tuesday of next week. So we covered a lot of topics. It was a fun chat, and I think you'll enjoy it. I want to start with the possibility of a future Hall of Famer and a guy who would have been inducted in this year's class. It's been pushed back, of course, to next year now due to COVID-19. Kevin Garnett is aiming very aggressively to buy the Minnesota Timberwolves. It would be awesome. Um, you know, the guy who I guess means the most to the franchise. I don't really think there's another. Is there another name that even crosses that list? Like the only Kevin guy who Love? comes close for me is Wally Zerbiak. Well, <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of it, it, you can kind of pick either way. Okay. Um, yeah, it would be it would be great. I think he's been. This has kind of been in discussions before, right? With like him and and Glenn Taylor mm-hmm. possibly teaming up. So it's nice that he's being like included and that he's actually making a real push for this because I think it would be awesome for the Timberwolves organization to have KG basically at the helm because it is a franchise that's kind of struggled with its I guess image and competitiveness Mm -hmm. lately and I think having KG there would be would be great for that yeah maybe not what you want if you're Carl Towns and D'Angelo Russell Kevin Garnett (laughs) coming to every practice looking down on you from the owner's box for 82 games a year Um, but to be clear you know Kevin Garnett and and his group it wouldn't just be Kevin Garnett forking over I I think some of the estimates I saw were like 1.2 billion dollars right uh, for this team, and based on what other teams have sold for, it, w- it wouldn't surprise me if that price gets driven up even a little bit higher, which is crazy. You know, considering where the Timberwolves are at right now as a franchise, they're already in a small market. There's not necessarily an established fan base or a history of success, and that team should pretty easily fetch a billion dollars. So, great news if you're one of the 29 other people in the world that owns an NBA franchise, uh, you're going to be cashing in at some point. But you know, you mentioned the previous relationship with Kevin Garnett and and Glenn Taylor I think it it was very good during their playing days Uh, it certainly soured uh, quite a bit after Kevin Garnett left Minnesota after the death of Flip Saunders Um, you know it's kind of a he said he said situation where Kevin Garnett feels like he should have been involved in a potential ownership share earlier in the process Glenn Taylor has, has always kind of denied that and and now it wouldn't necessarily be them teening up. It would be Glenn Taylor, who I believe is 78 years old and has, in his words, a bunch of other businesses that, that he owns, would be looking to kind of step away from his role with the Timberwolves and, and spend more time on those other ventures. And Kevin Garnett's group would be moving in. So it would be kind of a full-scale handoff. And I said to you off air, it reminds me in some ways of the process of the Bucks, you know, selling the team, Herb Cole, the longtime owner. Uh, the, the Wisconsin Senator selling the team to not to a former player, but to, you know, to investment bankers from New York City and Mark Lazary and Wes Edens and that whole process of, you, you know, we have a lot of offers, we have a lot of interests, but if you're going to buy this team, you have to keep it in Milwaukee. And that's been the mandate so far, at least for Glenn Taylor, who said openly he's had offers. He's had people not only recently, but in the past, try to buy the team and move it to Seattle or move it to Las Vegas and he's remained very steadfast that this team is staying in Minneapolis and whoever buys the team will have to obey that mandate. The Bucks were close to moving to Seattle. Right. And we're we're in Madison, so we kind of like saw that all go down firsthand. And the like the change in ownership, like from five years ago to now, like as a Bucks fan, is it's un like unrecognizable the difference between the Herb Cole era Bucks and this era of Bucks, And part of that's the new stadium. Part of that's Giannis is there. But I think switching owners can often make a huge difference in the organization from the top down. 
And if you want to keep the team in Minnesota, that's the main thing. That's the main driver for like KG, I think, making the most sense. Because oh, yeah. it kind of just cements them in Minnesota. Right. I, th- I think it would be kind of a rebirth on the fly. You know, oftentimes when a team moves cities, you have to kind of have a rebirth of the franchise just by default. You know, you're, you're essentially starting over, even though you're bringing a franchise from, say, Seattle to Oklahoma City. In a lot of ways, it's just kind of like an expansion franchise. And I think that's kind of how it's viewed by that fan base. You know, the people in Oklahoma City were not diehard Sonics fans until right. until that franchise moved there. But I think if you're, re- you're rebuilding with a central figure like Kevin Garnett, who everyone in that city already knows and loves, I think that really could breathe life into that organization. And at the end of the day, I mean, I'm, I'm not someone who really believes that ownership has a massive effect on the the final product on the floor. Obviously, it does from a spending perspective and, and luxury tax implications and things like that. But the Timberwolves are desperate for any kind of good PR. And I, I think assuming that any kind of deal to Kevin Garnett would, would go smoothly, I think that would be you know exactly what it would be for that city. Yep. All right. So on the NBA bubble front, plenty of news to get to. We, you know, we started talking about what we wanted to hit on with the show a couple of days ago, and we were a little concerned that there, you know, maybe wouldn't be all that much news as teams start to prepare for scrimmages, which begin in earnest tomorrow and span the next full week through next Tuesday. And then every team has off um, on Wednesday before games start Thursday and Friday, the real games. But Boy, do we have injury news. We have players coming back from injuries. We have players getting hurt again. We have guys like Kemba Walker who are kind of in between. But I think we need to start with probably the the worst news we've received today, uh, being that Marvin Bagley, who left practice on Sunday with what at the time was kind of a mysterious foot injury, the you know, the opposite foot from the one that he'd already been dealing with an injury to earlier this season. Um, he was spotted at practice today in a walking boot with crutches, and we have since learned that he will not be playing in Orlando. And I think to you and I, that's probably not a major surprise when games are set to start in nine days and he's in a walking boot and crutches. That's not the greatest sign. But I mean, Marvin Bagley is going to conclude his now second NBA season having played in 13 games and only starting six of those games. It, it, it's still I feel like we still don't even know who Marvin Bagley is as a player and this was setting up to be really a great stage for him a great stage for the kings to kind of assert themselves as this team that's nobody's talking about as a potential eight seed and this doesn't preclude them from doing that De'Aaron fox has worked his way back from an ankle injury he's trending in the right direction but you know just from an investment standpoint looking at that 2018 draft looking at the guy who went directly behind marvin bagley it it, it just kind of continues to look worse and worse and it's not necessarily marvin bagley's fault right now no he yeah, we've only really seen what like half a good season for Marvin Bagley. The end of his rookie year, the season didn't really like you said. He played thirteen games. It's not much of anything. And it, it, I thought at the beginning of the year, the Kings, like a lot of people did, could be a potential playoff team and could maybe even sneak into like the sixth seed if if Bagley progressed the way it looked like he might by the end of the year. And you know, Buggy Heald was there, and it it seemed like they had um, something good, and they they still do. But with Bagley being hurt now, and he's only played 75 games in his career, it's just a little shaky in terms of who Bagley is. I mean, historically, injuries, foot injuries for big men don't pan out that well. And and Bagley's more athletic. He's he's built more like a forward. But it's just concerning that he's had two foot injuries like this already this early in his career. And it would have been nice to see him in these seeding games, even if the even if the the Kings couldn't. Uh, make the playoffs or they couldn't make a real push 
it still would have been helpful and nice to see him play 30 to 35 mm-hmm. minutes a game potentially and just have the opportunity to go out there and kind of show us what we had weren't able to see from him this year. Yeah, I, I think we're the real victims here as, as yeah. people who evaluate <laughs> these players. You know, we, we just don't know. And like I said, he, he's only started 10 of the 75 games in which he's appeared in the NBA so far. And it's just really hard to evaluate guys like that. And you know, I'm, I'm not saying you just have to throw him in the starting lineup because he's the number two pick, but you just feel like you don't know who, who this guy is. And he was it's hard, it's easy to forget, I think, not that long ago, how big of a star he was at the college level. I mean, he was... You know, you if you watch college basketball during that 2017-18 season, he was the guy that that everybody was following. And you know, the the rise of Luka Doncic, who who went a pick below him, and Trey Young, who went three picks below him. You know, those guys have kind of left Marvin Bagley in the dust, and even DeAndre Ayton, who isn't on a great team and isn't putting up the massive Doncic and, and Trey Young numbers, he's been really good. And you know, I, I think we, people are already drawing comparisons to you know, Sam Bowie going one pick ahead of Michael Jordan, you know, even Akeem Olajuwon going ahead of Michael Jordan. That that one obviously totally defensible, but this this pick for the Kings is not looking great. And we're only we're only two years in and it's it's certainly moving in the wrong direction. No, it seems like the Kings kind of suffered from that mentality that the Suns also suffered was like the Suns like, well we have Devin Booker. Should we really be drafting Doncic to take the ball out of his hands? So let's draft Aiton. And I think the Kings did the same thing with with Darren Fox, who they felt was the future of the franchise and they were right. Well, but you know just <laughs> you can't you can't draft for need at mm. that point in the NBA draft you know you, you could, if you're a, if you're a team like like the Spurs were for so long or you know the Bucks or the Clippers or the Lakers now and you're picking 24th and you know you you need another guard maybe you maybe you lean towards guard you need a big man maybe you lean towards center if you're picking first or second or fourth in the NBA draft with the way that the league works now it's just it's not defensible to pick a player just because there might be some overlap with another guy on your roster. No, no, not <laughs> no. whatsoever. Um, another somewhat depressing injury news, Kemba Walker, uh, the Celtics have been very cautious with his workload thus far. He's practicing every other day. Brad Stevens said that on Tuesday, Kemba Walker practiced for about an hour. Still not clear, you know, which portions he's being held out of. What exactly is the issue? It's it, it, He's one guy that I think we you know, from a fantasy perspective, kind of blindly hoped that by the time these four and a half, almost five months, by the time games are played came to pass that whatever knee issues were bothering him in January and February and March would just be past him. It would be, you know, a rest and recovery type of situation. And that's not been the case at all. And that's one very concerning for the Celtics chances to advance through the Eastern conference playoffs. And two, uh, you know, the Celtics chances over the next few seasons, because Kemba Walker is locked in, as that guy you know to to be the star of a team that you know has two really great wings in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and if his body were to start breaking down over these next couple of years that would obviously you know really put a wrench in in the Celtics future plans it would and it was it was clearly I mean you look at his stats from when he first started having seen uh knee soreness this season like it it's so dramatic it was mid-January and so his final 14 appearances, uh, he, he missed 10 games in between January 18th and March 10th when the season suspended. In his 14 appearances, he only shot 36% from the field, which is horrible for Kemba Walker. For it's anybody, it's horrible. And so I don't know what we should be expecting from him this season, but you're right in that it kind of bleeds into 
the upcoming seasons as well because he's on such a big contract. And, you know, thankfully the emergence of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown may be able to take some of the workload off of Kemba Walker. But right now it's completely up in the air what's going to happen in his in his future. Uh, Brad Stevens did note that Kemba Walker is very unlikely to play in the team's first scrimmage. I believe that's on Friday. Not a surprise there. Uh, we should note that all this was kind of sprung upon us today. The the NBA just, you know, in a, in a media blitz kind of laid out the entire plan for these scrimmages that we knew were happening, but we didn't have a schedule until this morning. We didn't know exactly what the format of the games would be. We didn't know when which, you know, certain teams were playing. Every team will have three scrimmages. From from the comments that have emerged already from a lot of coaches, it really doesn't sound like teams are going to take this. I wouldn't say not that seriously, but don't expect to see LeBron James playing 37 minutes in all three of these scrimmages. I, I think it's going to be handled a lot like not even the preseason, but like the end of the preseason where maybe LeBron, maybe Kawhi Leonard come out and play the first quarter. And that's probably all we see of them for that night. Yeah, it, the the Bucks already came out and said that Giannis is going to play in the first scrimmage game, but that in the following two scrimmage games, he's either uh, going to play a like way fewer minutes or not at all. So I think that kind of sets the tone for like the star players of the NBA, and even some of the the guys on like the Nets, for example, Jamal Crawford, Tyler Johnson, Justin Anderson. Those three guys aren't playing in the Nets' first scrimmage, so you know it's it's going to be like you said very preseason-esque for, I think, a lot of these teams. And, you know, I mean, for, for people who've been missing the NBA a ton and are diehard NBA fans, like, we'll watch, you know, Chris Chioza play point guard for 40 yes. minutes. But and, it's not going to be the best television for the casual fan, I don't think, until the seeding games actually start. I was going to say, you know, the, the Nets really can't afford to have Justin Anderson get hurt during one of these scrimmages. But honestly, they really can't. No, uh, you, when you look at this depth chart, it is... It's alarming, to say the least. Um, one thing to note with the scrimmages, uh, for the first scrimmage for each team, which will be either Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, depending on the team, that one will be a 40-minute game with four 10-minute quarters. Then the next two scrimmages will be the normal 48-minute game with 12-minute quarters. So not exactly sure what the motivation is there. You know, you would you would think maybe this would be kind of a trial ground for you know, the Elam ending or playing halves, you know, things that have kind of been tossed around in, in the G League or at the college level. Um, but just a, a slightly shorter game for that first one. So if you if you are tuning in to NBA TV or League Pass and watching and wondering why these games are only 40 minutes, that's going to be why. Do you have any belief in Bull Bull? I, I wouldn't even say playing, but like being a real factor for the Nuggets at any point over the next two to three months. I'm all in. I saw one seven-minute video on Twitter, and and I'm right back to where I was, you know, back in October, September when he was, or uh, November when he was playing at Oregon. I am highly intrigued, uh, partially because I and both of us once witnessed a Thon Maker in the playoffs at home. Playoff Thon swing. I think two games, maybe. That was against the Celtics, right? That was against yeah. the Celtics. So, uh, I think you know there there are shades of of Thon Maker there. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, he, it sounds like he's like really actually going to play in these scrimmage games because the Nuggets are apparently down to like eight or nine guys, which has been vaguely reported. And it's I still mm-hmm. don't know exactly who's there, who's not, who's available. And so it's possible we get to see a decent amount of him during the seeding games as well. Mm-hmm. And I think I honestly think his play in the seeding games is going to determine how much he might play in the playoffs. Not that I really expect him to play in the playoffs because 
Mike Malone can't even confirm that Michael Porter Jr. is right. going to play in the playoffs. So <laughs> that's the thing for me is I, you know, I'm obviously joking about him being a real factor for this team, but I mean, they could use him. But at the same time, you know, this was a, a team that finished third before the shutdown in the Western Conference. They they were fine. They they had some rough stretches, but at the end of the day, arguably the third best team in the Western Conference. And you know, like you said, Mike Malone was extremely hesitant to take the training wheels off of Michael Porter Jr. Even even once he proved that, at least for the most part, you know, he'd moved past the back surgery that that kept him out for his entire rookie year. Like even when he'd strung together like twenty straight games of being a solid bench player, he's still playing fourteen minutes, twelve minutes, nine minutes off the bench. I don't I don't think now's the time to unleash Bull Bull, uh, and he's not. As much as I love Bull Bull, and I, I I think he has a chance to be a really unique NBA player. He, he didn't quite have the pedigree of Michael Porter where, I right. mean, there, there's a world in which Michael Porter becomes like the next Jason Tatum. Like that's not completely off the table based on how people th- evaluated him at the high school and, and the beginning of his college career at that level. He has that kind of potential. I don't know if anybody's there with bowl, um, you know, maybe down the road at some point he, he becomes a big time impact player, but barring an injury or two for the nuggets, I, I don't think we see a ton of him. Uh, with that said, I, I think, you know, this team, is kind of in need of one more guy. I think that guy was Malik Beasley, who they traded away. Um, and, you know, they made a few other moves around the deadline. And and suddenly this roster is a little bit more pared down, maybe, than you'd like it to be for a playoff run. Yeah, I mean, also with trying to get bowl bowl minutes, it's it's probably going to come either at the four or the five, most likely. And you can't, I don't know if you can really afford to take minutes away from Paul Millsap, honestly, who has the best point differential on the team. Like, he's plus 12 and a half. It's he's what he's doing on the defensive end for them is really understated and yeah they i think they do need that fifth guy because they have their four they have Millsap, Jokic, barton jamal murray mm-hmm. gary harris should be that guy but it's it, gary harris and michael porter single-handedly or double-handedly however you want to say it can like swing the fate of this team if both of those guys play up to their potential they could easily go to the Western Conference Finals. They could potentially get in the NBA Finals if Michael Porter can be that guy that we have seen him be and if Gary Harris can stay healthy and be the 3 and D guy that we've seen because then they they are one of the deepest teams in the league and they do go like legitimately good players six mm-hmm. or seven deep. So before we get to the 76ers, and I know you have some some interesting stats on them that, that you you sent me earlier today, we should mention Justice Winslow, kind of in the same vein as Marvin Bagley, another guy who, you know, he, he's drafted a few years earlier, and we at least have some sample of Justice Winslow, um, you know, playing a full NBA season, being a productive player, played 68 games in 2017-18, 66 games last year, 78 as a rookie. Um, so we have basically three full seasons of Justice Winslow, but he goes down with with a hip injury at practice on Monday, and he's now done for the rest of the NBA bubble, which, much like Bagley, I don't think anybody's expecting Memphis to advance, maybe past the first round of the NBA playoffs at best. You know, I don't think anybody thought Justice Winslow was going to show up in Orlando and average 30 a game, but we haven't seen him play in so long. He's only played 11 games this year. It really reminds me a lot of the Bagley situation just for this season, where it was just kind of long climb back, where we got these vague updates every now and then. Nobody really knew what was going on, and it, it kind of finally seemed like uh, this was going to be the time. And, and I think Winslow would have played a fairly major role for Memphis. We haven't even seen him in a Grizzlies uniform yet, um, having been traded around the deadline in that Iguodala deal. But we'll now have to wait till next year on Justice Winslow. And, I mean, you have to wonder, 
at this point, I, I think he has next year guaranteed at about 12 or 13 million. Uh, after that, he's, he's an unrestricted free agent and all of a sudden he's going into his sixth NBA season and it, it still feels like he hasn't quite proven himself. Like, I don't, I don't know how he'll be valued when we have this conversation, you know, around this time next year. I don't know either. His, his the role that he has to play, I think is like too specific. And I've got aside from the injury stuff. So if he can, even if he can stay healthy, his role is like he has to be a ball handler because the spacing is bad. Like I think he could play, he could play on a team where everybody else could space the floor. If that makes sense, like if you put him and four shooters on the court, even if he wasn't the one handling the ball, that could work because he can cut and stuff and can be a secondary ball handler. But I'm not sure what his he has such a like a strange role where he needs to handle the ball. It's I'm not completely in on Justice Winslow. I'm not out. I think that's how a lot of people feel. Yep. It If he can stay healthy, I mean, he's going to have a good role in the NBA because he's such a great mm-hmm. defender and he can do stuff. You know, he can pass a little bit. Right. And he's had seasons where he shot well. He's had seasons where he hasn't. Um, it's tough. On the one hand, he is a player that I loved coming out of college as a prospect. And as you know, that, that tends to stay with you even right. five, 10, 15 years, Gerald Green looking at you into a player's career. On the other hand, he was on that Duke team that beat Wisconsin. So I'm, I'm still very much conflicted about that. Uh, but I'm, I'm with you. I, you know, his numbers really have varied so much year to year as well. And, and as have his minutes. And that's part of it. You know, he, he has his, his second year in the NBA, he's averaging almost four assists a game, almost one and a half steals per game. And then the next year, those numbers are virtually cut in half. You know, he's, he's kind of played a different role because that Miami Heat roster has been so dynamic year to year that, you know, he's, he's been asked to do a lot of different things for that team. At times, he's a ball handler. At times, he's a defensive-minded wing. So we, we still don't really know what his potential is in the long term. But um, I, I think next year is, is, is shaping up now to be a definitive prove-it year for Justice Winslow, which you don't often say about guys who are you know, going to be 25 years old by, by the time we're talking about him in March. Right. So speaking of the 76ers, you, you sent me a, I guess I would say surprising tweet from a, a Sixers reporter earlier today, noting that Brett Brown had said at practice Tuesday that allegedly Al Horford and Joel Embiid have not even played together at any points during, during what have been inter-squad scrimmages uh, so far in Orlando. And we got news last week that Ben Simmons was working at power forward. I think reading that is like more shocking than the actual practice of it. Because if right. you watch the Sixers, there's a lot of times when he's kind of playing in the front court. So it's not all that crazy. And you kind of forget how well Shake Milton played. And I think it was yeah. about a 14 or 15 game sample. Most of that coming without Ben Simmons, who was hurt during that time uh, in February and March. So, you know, part of this, I think, is wanting to get Shake Milton on the floor. Part of it is trying to maximize Ben Simmons. And then the other maybe more concerning part is Al Horford just has not been all that good and all that effective for the Sixers. No, and this is kind of lining up to be a situation where Brett Brown is almost doing everything he can to not have his four best players on the court at the same time. Like Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, Al Horford, Joel Embiid. Everything that this is signaling is that those guys being on the court at the same time, not great for the 76ers, which is horrible in the long term and like like you it, it makes me want to go back and like talk about the jimmy butler the, the decision to trade jimmy butler or jimmy butler leaving or however you want to define like what happened in free agency because those lineups with jimmy butler in them instead of al horford those four guys 
last season were plus 24. It was one of the best four-man groups in the entire league. This season, with the with Al Horford in there instead, they're like plus 0.6. They're virtually a neutral team. One of the worst offensive lineups in the league, but one of the best defensive lineups in the league. The reality is it comes out to a neutral team. And so having... It's in hindsight, like I feel like this people talk about the decision being strange and not ideal. But when you look at those numbers side by side and there's a 24 point difference in the effectiveness of those lineups, it was really drastic. And Horford is on a four year, one hundred nine million dollar deal and not being able to play with uh, not wanting to play him with Joel Embiid is crazy, especially in the playoffs, because then how many minutes is that Horford going to play? Twenty. I don't know. And the contract is what I wanted to bring up specifically, because not only is he on the books for those numbers, and we'll get to that in a second, but Ben Simmons is on the on the books for 29 mil next year. His extension kicks in, and that escalates all the way up to 36 million for the 23-24 season. Tobias Harris is making 39 million mm. in 23-24. He's locked in for four more years after this one. Joel Embiid is locked in for three more after this one. Um, I mean, they're, they went all in on that four man core plus Josh Richardson, who's still on a very affordable deal, yeah. making only 10 mil next year. And then a little over 11, uh, the year after on, on what I believe is a player option, but that Horford contract, I mean, there was a reason that, that he left Boston and, and turned down some other offers, I think, because I have a hard time believing that any other team was offering that kind of money and that kind of long-term stability, to a player who's 34 years old right now. And to be fair, Al Horford has been remarkably consistent throughout his career. He was very, very good for Boston last year, had one of his best overall seasons at age 32. Um, and I think Philly went all in to basically defend Giannis Antetokounmpo, yeah. right, by getting the two guys in Embiid and Horford who with now maybe the possible exception of Bam Adebayo this year. But as, going into this season, Horford and Embiid were the two players who gave Giannis the most trouble in the NBA. All of a sudden, the Sixers have both of them. But what it's going to cost them in the long term to have that is is pretty alarming. And I, I think, obviously, if you're Philly, you'd probably rather have done that like a two-plus-one type of deal. Right. You know, basically the same contract that like Paul Millsap had with Denver. Like that's, I think that's probably what they should have done. Um, maybe if that's what they had offered, Al Horford wouldn't be in a Sixers uniform right now. But... Think of how bad this looks just for this season, just for mm-hmm. the NBA bubble restart. Where, like, I mean, even if Al Horford gives you 25 good minutes off the bench, that's still probably not what you're expecting. How's that going to look this time next year? How's that going to look in December of 2022? You know, when Al Horford is now it's three years older than he is now. Like it's, I, I, I people talk about the Chris Paul contract, the Russell Westbrook contract. Like this could very slowly become, or, or very quickly, I should say, become one of the worst contracts in the NBA in a year or two. It could. And I think, I mean, you're right in that getting Horford to pair with Embiid to stop Giannis was, I think, a good idea, like yes. in a vacuum. And that's one of the reasons I still think Philly could end up in the finals is because if that formula works against Giannis, then they're in the then they're in the finals. Right. But I don't know. It's it's tough to say. It's tough to look at those num- the like the number differential between the Butler mm-hmm. lineups and the Horford lineups and think that it was a good long term decision, especially with the age and the contract numbers factor in. And I know Jimmy Butler and Ben Simmons didn't really seem to get along, but you might I mean, have to try to put that aside it. at some point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't think Jimmy Butler has had like a great working relationship with with, with anybody, Butler. and I, I think this has been the case for a lot of teams and. 
you know, there's, there's something to be said for wanting to keep your young superstar happy in Ben yeah. Simmons. And if, you know, who knows what was said behind the scenes? Maybe, maybe he said, I can't, I cannot play with this guy. And if they right. feel that strongly about Simmons, then so be it. And, you know, Butler's probably on the, the wrong end of his prime as well. You know, mm-hmm. and I think offering Butler a similar deal to Horford might have been, you know, just as dangerous in the long term. But I, I guess I, I feel kind of bad for myself in retrospect that I didn't see this coming more. You know, I, we, we were looking back on one of our last podcasts for in, in our Rotowire feed. And, you know, I had just kind of presumed that the Sixers were going to be a top two team in the East. I thought their starting five was so strong. Uh, and even their bench, you know, wasn't all that weak that they would just, you know, be a, a juggernaut defensive team and kind of waltz their way to a high 50 win season. And that was never the case from the start. It was never the case in the middle. It was not the case in March. And at the same time, there still seems to be this undying belief, you know, from me to some degree and from the media as a whole, that if there's one team in the East that, you know, the, the phrase that you always hear with the Sixers is the one team that has the talent to beat Milwaukee a lot of people still feel like it's Philly, despite there being a lot of evidence to the contrary in terms of the on-court results. Yeah, they're just the the difference between their on-paper talent and their on-court product is the biggest in the league. I think. I think yeah. I, I think they're still. We, we still have to keep in mind that they are a very good team. I think they were like what twenty-nine and two at home. Yeah. Um. You know, they're they're a team that's thirteen games over five hundred. Like this, this has not been a complete disaster by any means, but. At the same time, they're in sixth place. And right. I think if you had said that you know, in mid-March or at the end of the regular season, if Philly was the sixth seed, is that a success or a failure? Just about everybody would have called that a failure. Yes. So in terms of some better news, um, not, not necessarily on the injury front, but Russell Westbrook, who had a positive COVID diagnosis um, earlier this month, arrived in Orlando on Monday, I believe that was. He's, he's back with the Rockets uh, still, you know, kind of doing the mandatory quarantine period before he's cleared to actually practice and eventually scrimmage and play. But this is a obviously a positive development for the Rockets. You know, we had a number and still have, I guess, a number of players who are kind of in limbo. We, you know, there hasn't been a ton of transparency in terms of teams having to disclose not only which players have tested positive, but when those players will arrive, when they're expected to arrive, not even a general radius, like players just seem to show up one day and, and that's just how it goes. <laughs> and the Rockets are now, you know, close to having their full team. And I, I think they're kind of the Sixers of the West in some ways where you, you can watch them on one night and they look like the worst team in the league. You can watch them on another night. They look like the best team in the league and you put it all together and they're kind of a middle of the road team in the Western conference. But there is this feeling with them that when you have two MVPs in your backcourt, anything can happen. And when you play that style, you can beat anybody on any given night. Yeah, I mean, the this, the difference between the sixth seed in the West and the two seed in the West isn't that dramatic. I mean, Houston only has four fewer wins than right. the Clippers. And so, you know, they, they are in sixth place, but I think they, they're they better than their seeding indicates. And yeah, when, you know, I'm... I don't know what to think of this team. I don't think a lot of people know what to think of this team. They made a huge trade before the deadline to get rid of Capella and basically commit to the small ball thing. No, we didn't get much of a sample for that. But the numbers, when you kind of you know move who's on the court, who's off the court, the small ball lineup looks good. The one with Covington in it, um, like it, it's really outscoring teams. But I just wonder how they're going to do when they have to go up against some other big centers potentially in the in the West. Um, how are they going to deal with Anthony Davis? 
How are they going to deal with Jokic? They've already dealt with Gobert to some extent, so I'm not too worried about that. But how are they going to deal with Porzingis? Guys like that. I'm, I'm just really interested in, in, in what they're able to do in the playoffs. Me too. I think other than the LA teams in Milwaukee who are, are just extremely fun to watch because of the talent level and because of the efficiency on the offensive end, I, I think Houston's the team that I'm most excited to just see play basketball you know not necessarily evaluate or care one way or the other how things go but we never really got all that much of a sample of the new look rockets we kind of basically like the what 10 or 12 games after the all-star break before the shutdown is all we got and some of those games they look really good they they had a big win over the lakers other games they look really bad they had a, a few kind of minor skids during that stretch but it's such a unique style and mm-hmm. it's just it, of course it's the rockets that are going all in on this they've kind of been edging toward it for a number of years and right. you know I, I always come back to you know mike d'antoni has said when when talking about the the teams that he coached with steve nash in phoenix that you know those teams were viewed as as so revolutionary at the time because they were taking pull-up threes in transition and they were passing up on open mid-range jumpers and he always says like the reason we didn't get to the top is because we didn't push it enough you know we right we kind of went 75% of what I wanted to do. And, you know, whether it was, you know, kind of the, the pressure of just playing that way in general, how it would be perceived. I don't know if there was ownership pressure to play a certain way or sign certain guys, but he was never fully able to go all in. And I think maybe this isn't the ideal roster that he would have for it. You know, I don't know if Russell Westbrook is the the prototype for a Mike D'Antoni guard, uh, right. the way that he has just kind of stopped shooting threes altogether. But, I mean, the rest of the roster – not really employing a true center, I think, is something that D'Antoni has probably deep down wanted to try for a really long time. And, you know, it, this is going to be a trial by fire, I guess, in some ways, because even though they did have that that small sample of playing this way after the All-Star break, I think being off for four and a half months kind of wipes that away. And in, in a lot of ways, you probably have to start over. Yeah, I mean, the Rockets have undergone, like, the biggest change of any team stylistically over the past what year that I can remember ever I mean I don't know, ever happening too. mid-season it's one thing to do that in the offseason it's another thing to do it on the fly mid-season because I think I think switching I think switching from Chris Paul to Russell Westbrook is as big of a like change as just almost getting rid of your center I think they're almost comparable to me just the stylistic yeah. difference between yeah, and Westbrook they did both. and Chris Paul and they did both is what I mean and that's so dramatic it's like hard to even it's hard to even really explain like i i think that that move even though it feels like they had to where chris paul and jim uh, james, uh, james hargan seemed like they just couldn't get along anymore which came out of nowhere and was like really well well yeah but uh that decision was really dramatic like they are much worse with westbrook on the court by himself than they were with chris paul on the court by himself they were way better mm-hmm like last season when Chris Paul was out there by himself, the Rockets were plus eight points per 100 possessions. With with Westbrook out there by himself, they're minus 2.7. So I don't want to say it, it completely kills their playoff chances, obviously, because I still think they could get to the finals. But if they had Chris Paul on this roster right. instead of Russell Westbrook, I would feel way better about it. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I was, I was um, looking back on some of those cavaliers teams i think nba tv was replaying like a, a random Cavs warriors game from okay. the 2017 finals i want to say it was lot. one it was one that the Cavs lost and i just remember thinking like the Cavs are just overwhelmed by this team this was obviously after durant had arrived no team played the warriors tougher 
especially in the playoffs than Houston. Oh yeah. For two straight years. I mean, Houston was right there and for varying reasons, um, you know, wasn't able to finish the job, but they, they put up way more of a fight than, than those Cleveland teams did once Durant arrived, of course. And no other team in the league really put a scare into the Warriors whatsoever during that run, regular season or playoffs. And it was Houston that did it. And a big part of the reason was there was always one of those guys, Chris Paul or James Harden on the court at all times. And if you remember, they were fairly hesitant to deploy them together for like 40 plus minutes because I think you didn't want to run the risk of having to have Austin Rivers handle the ball even for two minutes against that Warriors team. And, you know, I, I do wonder if the fact that there isn't a team that's quite as dominant as the Warriors, you know, means means that we finally see Houston, you know, kind of reach a peak that maybe we didn't know they had. But I, I am I side with the numbers that you brought up in that they are going all in on a strategy that did not work for OKC with <laughs> Russell Westbrook, where you kind of just have to turn a blind eye to the numbers and say, yeah, but when he has a great game, we're not going to lose. The problem is you're going to need him to have a lot of great games in a very short period of time. And historically, that just has it's never been the case for Westbrook. Yeah, his his playoff numbers aren't great at all. He no. just really hasn't proven in the playoffs. And him and Chris Paul have played almost the exact same amount of playoff games and playoff minutes. And Westbrook in the playoffs, plus zero net rating, 51% true shooting, which isn't great. 1.9 assist to turnover ratio. That's not great. Chris Paul, on the other hand, is plus 10, 58% true shooting, 3 to 1 assist to turnover ratio. I mean, Chris Paul's a much better player. It's not, I don't even think it's that close because he's more, he's also a two way player. He gets his teammates involved. He's a better passer. He's a better shooter. He's a better defender. And Westbrook's style, I just, it's too, I don't think it, I don't know. He, he has to be one of your two options. Your, oh, of course. One or two options. There's no other way to play the guy. But um, I think that decision was like really, really dramatic. I think you just made a good point just there that there's no other way to play Russell Westbrook. That's a problem. Yeah. There's a, there are other ways to play even someone like Chris Paul, who you want him to play like Chris Paul when he's out there because he is one of the best ball handlers, best pick and roll ball handlers of all time, one of the most efficient point guards ever. But if you need him to go stand in the corner and hit threes, he can do that. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem with Westbrook. When you have the most ball-dominant player of our era in James Harden, you can't just station Russell Westbrook in the corner and say, hey, you're a 45% open corner three-point shooter. Just drain these all day. You've never done that in your career like they did with Chris Paul. I think he was probably happy to do that at certain times. And they've had to be really creative about how they use Westbrook off ball. And it's it's a little bit clunky at times. And honestly, it's a big part of the reason that they ended up having to trade their center because they just they couldn't make it work. So you kind of have to go to extreme lengths to accommodate Russell Westbrook on your roster, which... If you're comparing him to Chris Paul, you do not have to go to those same lengths. Right. This is not on the on the document, but a quick aside while we're on this topic. Who do you think will go down as the better player 10, 20, 30 years from now between Westbrook and Paul? I, I think it'll be Chris Paul. I, I think it's Chris Paul as well. I, I think people will look back at Russell Westbrook's basketball reference page and note that he averaged a triple-double for four consecutive seasons, or excuse me, three consecutive seasons. Um you know, leading the league in scoring twice, leading the league in assists twice, getting to a finals, which technically Chris Paul hasn't done. And and obviously Kevin Durant played a major role in that for Westbrook. But as much as like oftentimes Chris Paul passes the eye test more, I, I do think that when, when we're talking, looking back in, you know, far hindsight, I, I don't know. I, I think Westbrook is going to age gracefully as in terms of his legacy. 
because the numbers are so startling. They are regular season, sure. Yeah. I think I think once people I think if you if if people start valuing the play, not if they start valuing the playoffs more, but the people who are more inclined when making these discussions of who's better historically, I think the playoff numbers really come into question and then the discussion becomes in my opinion not close. The regular season I think sure. it's way easier to make an argument, but Chris Paul's prime was in my opinion just as absurd as Russell Westbrook's prime because he was leading the league. He Chris Paul led the league in assists four times, led the league in steals six times, also averaged basically 20 points a game throughout that stretch on great shooting. Westbrook was mostly a one-way player and was not an efficient passer. He passed a lot because he always had the ball in his hands. Like if you sh- if you have the ball in your hands for forty minutes a game, yeah, you're gonna get close to ten assists if you're a point guard. So he basically passed, or he would have had to take a shot clock violation. Yes. More or less, yeah. <laughs> no, fair enough. I, th- I think that's a, a succinct way to put I, it, and I agree with you overall. I, d- I think I just think it's gonna they're gonna be very interesting cases because remember when ESPN came out with that top seventy two or seventy four or whatever it was a couple months ago. When that list comes out in 10 or 15 years, I feel like those guys are going to be really close for totally different reasons. Like they could be yeah. 28th and 29th on that list, but their resumes are just like complete opposites in a lot of ways. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause like a lot of times when, if you like when a list, when there's a subjective list like that, some of it comes down to like style of play or how many accolades did this guy get or were the numbers absurd? There are a lot of factors that go into that stuff. So I, I get. I understand the point you're trying to make. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, n- both of us think Chris Paul should be above him, but I can understand why. Later, you know, twenty or thirty years down the line, people will try to make the argument the other way. Yeah, and I think it should be close. I think one one has won an MVP, one hasn't. The triple double thing, as menial as it might be in the grand scheme, does mean something. You know, it was a major deal at the time. It basically yep. won him that MVP, and then to come back and do it two more times after, uh, I think, is certainly noteworthy. Um, I do want to ask you about Portland before we get into closing the book on some of the season awards, which we found out this week will now um, not be counted. The, the games that are played from here on out will not count towards those awards, right. which I think everybody just kind of expected that they would because they are technically regular season games, uh, but that will not be the case. But before we get to that, how dangerous do you view the Trailblazers as a potential foil, not only to Memphis for the eight seed, but then projecting out the LA Lakers most likely as a as a 1-8 matchup. I think that they're way better than Memphis. Yes. The question is can they make up the the games and that's tough because it's kind of it's one of those scenarios where they would basically have to go 6 and 2 or 7 and 1 and the 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 Grizzlies would have to go 2 and 6 uh 3 and 5 something like that. And I think if they got in that in that playoff, I think Portland could do it. Um, I mean, having getting Nurkic back is the main thing. That's the driver. That's that's what makes this team go from and basically an average team to a, like a top tier team. And we saw that happen last year in the playoffs where they got as far as the Western Conference Finals because. When Lillard and Nurkic were on the court together last season, the Blazers were plus 11, which is basically the Milwaukee Bucks this season. So, And those two aren't on the court all the time together, obviously. But if you can get 35 to 40 minutes out of those guys together on the court, that's a big deal. 
and they have the personnel to try to make Anthony Davis uncomfortable. Um, if they do end up in the eighth seed and play the Lakers in the first round, I think they're pretty dangerous. I would never pick them over the Lakers, but if they forced a game six or somehow forced a game seven in the first round, I wouldn't be like, that's not the craziest thing that's happened. I wouldn't be beside myself. Okay. So I would not be beside myself either. I think that's, we should establish that first and foremost. I I think it's partially the potential of a team that is getting a guy back who hasn't played at all this year in Nurkic. And the last time we saw him was playing the best basketball of his career by far getting Zach Collins back who, you know, I I think that he's maybe become a little bit overrated in these conversations, but I think the reason for that is because the other options were just so bad for Portland (laughs) and nothing against Mello, but you know, beyond him, it's Nas Little, it's Hazonia, it, you know, Gary Trent playing probably more minutes than you'd want. Uh, obviously, Hassan Whiteside played a lot of minutes for them. Caleb Swanigan was back playing minutes. Like, right. he was basically out of the league a year ago. And then you lose Trevor Ariza as well. So, like, it's not that Zach Collins is a superstar. It's just that you at least have somebody competent now playing those minutes up front. And I think that's huge. And I think, I think the Lakers are maybe a little bit more vulnerable than a lot of people believe as well. I, I don't think they would lose a series to Portland, but... This just strikes me as one of those series where, um, you know, I, I think LeBron would really just prefer to cruise through the first round, and it would just it would be an annoyance for him to have to try and actually play hard for seven, six, seven games. Um, and we've seen, you know, LeBron teams, whether it's the the Heat or the Lakers or the Cavs, whoever it might be, they they have a tendency to let lesser teams kind of linger around in some of these series. And I, you know, I, it wouldn't shock me if this became kind of a light version of like heat pacers where right. you know you know one team is better you really you really feel like that team is eventually going to win but i mean if there's one one superstar who's not going to back down from lebron james it's, it's damian lillard or anybody you know I don't, I don't think dame goes into a matchup with the lakers thinking well hopefully we can st- we can steal a game and make this respectable you know I, I think portland would go into that series at least feeling good about the backcourt matchups, right? I mean, who Oh yeah. who guards Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum? I mean, you have Danny Green, LeBron's not chasing those guys around. You know, I guess you have KCP, but I think Portland, which is not a deep team in its own right, but I, I think Portland looks at the Lakers, especially that backcourt and says, you know, there are some matchups here that we can really take advantage of. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure the Lakers feel like, well, Portland doesn't have anybody to guard LeBron. And I'm sure the uh, the Trailblazers think, well, the Lakers don't have anybody to guard Damian Lillard. So I think that will be interesting. I mean, obviously, I think LeBron wins in that in that <laughs> in that scenario. But the, I mean, like it, it sounds ridiculous, but I, the Trevor Ariza loss like really really hurts Portland. He was playing really good for them. He was their best chance at stopping LeBron. Carmelo Anthony cannot guard LeBron James. And I don't think Zach Collins can guard LeBron James. And I know CJ McCollum cannot guard LeBron James. So and I said this on a, a past podcast. I think Portland's best chance at being in the Lakers is completely shutting Anthony Davis down with Nurkic, with Whiteside, just refusing to let him do anything on offense. And just accept that LeBron, accept that you don't have anybody to guard LeBron. Try to make LeBron take 25 to 30 mm-hmm. shots a game or something ridiculous like that force him to just just try to tire him out right um until the you know try to just <laughs> keep tiring him out and i said this to you on that podcast that you're referencing lebron doesn't necessarily love playing that way if nope. they're if they're basically doubling anthony davis the entire game lebron doesn't want to take 35 shots and with the personnel around him if you're essentially taking anthony davis out of the game or doing what you can to do that 
you know, you don't want Danny Green taking 20 shots either. You don't want Alex Caruso, you know, throwing up a 36% usage rate. And I think, yeah, if, if you can force LeBron to at least have to expend all of his energy to beat you, I don't think that's a bad way to go about it if you're Portland. And, you know, I think ideally you take LeBron out of the game, but one, that's probably impossible. Two, yeah. Portland does not have a single defender on the roster, like you said, who is capable of even maybe slowing LeBron down. I mean, I, I think that would have been Trevor Ariza. It's not yeah. Skinny Mellow. It's not Nas Little. You know, we'll see. Can Anthony Simons step up and, <laughs> and guard LeBron James? I don't know. Uh, but I, I, I do. I am starting to come around on Portland as the team that I that I favor to to get that eight seed. I, I think if they make it to a playoff with Memphis, you know, that two game playoff, whatever it would be, if even if Portland's a nine, I think they beat Memphis twice and get that spot. You know, the question is, is how much maybe does New Orleans factor into that, too? I mean, I think New Orleans, I would love to see Portland or New Orleans in the first round. I think both of those teams have a better shot at upsetting the Lakers than the Grizzlies mm-hmm. do. I'm not trying to throw shots at the at the Grizzlies, but their personnel oh. is not. They can't. They can't really yeah, compete. Yeah, Jang aside, they, they just don't have <laughs> enough. All right. We got about five minutes left. Let's get into um, or at least put a bow on these end of season awards. You and I have discussed these at length. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the the four months off has given us even more time to dive into things uh, as as none of the stats or none of the performances have changed. We have litigated and relitigated every single award basically to death, but we have to do it one more time because we now know that nothing that happens in Orlando will count toward these awards. I believe uh, voting is going to take place over the next week. So first of all, do you, do you like this idea that none of the seeding games will count toward um, these end of season awards? I do actually. I think that these teams will be a lot of these teams will be in a situation where their seeding will be locked in very early on, especially for like the Bucks, mm-hmm. for example. And it wouldn't surprise me if Giannis played five of these eight games. It wouldn't even surprise me if he played like three of them. Um, yeah. And so I think you don't want to run into a situation where that becomes a factor in the voting. Well, for, from one perspective with that, you could... Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not going to do the mental math here, and you know, obviously, we built up like 65-ish games for most teams, so you're not going to see a drastic reduction in in stats. But let's say Giannis plays in all eight games, but he only plays an average of like 15 minutes on aggregate. I don't, I don't right. think that would happen. But let's say that happens; those all count towards his season stats. So mm-hmm. you know, he could end up losing two or three points per game if he is just out there for a couple minutes to get a run, get a sweat in, and then he's out. You know, I, I think it would have created a real issue statistically. And the other thing, I, I, I want to say it was Kevin O'Connor on the Ringer Pod who brought this up, and I think it's a really good point that I initially had not considered, is the recency bias and how I think that would inevitably seep into the minds of some voters. And with, with MVP and Rookie of the Year, I feel like there's enough of a gap that it, it probably wouldn't have mattered. But, you know, what if, what if, like you said, Giannis only plays two of the eight games and LeBron says, I'm playing all eight games, and he averages 35, 10, and 12 in those eight games – a lot of people don't remember exactly what LeBron was doing game to game in fe- in February and March, but they would remember what he did in those eight games. And I think inherently there would be this bias where you'd want to reward what happened recently. Yeah, I, I agree. So I, I, in that, in that sense, I think it's probably for the best and I don't have a real problem with it. I mean, if the league was playing 15 seeding games or trying to finish the entire season, then I think you'd want those to count, but eight games in which, if we're being honest, most of the guys that are vying for these awards aren't going to be playing in, in the majority of those games. 
Um, I don't take a major issue with it. So let's end on this. Uh, we'll start with MVP and just kind of go down the list. We are in agreement that uh, at some point during the playoffs, which is this is one benefit of the way that they're, or I guess the one benefit of the way that the pandemic has affected the NBA is the NBA is going to award these during the playoffs. So we kind of get back to the pre-award show situation where you know Giannis is going to receive that trophy, presumably, on the court before a game, which is always a cool moment. Yeah, that's nice. I don't really like the award show. But that's me neither. Just, that's just me. I like the idea of it. I don't know how. I think they should have snuck it in between the end of the regular season and the playoffs. Maybe yes. get, maybe take like a full week off and make that the center, you know, and really try to get, you know, before players take off on vacation, before the foreign guys go overseas, do the award show while everybody's there and make it a real spectacle. And, you know, when there's still something on the line, you know, like, let, let's, you know, when they hand the award to Russell Westbrook and James Harden feels like he should have won it they might have to go play each other in a couple of weeks. You know, I think that would create, uh, you know, just a lot of drama uh, for a league that, that obviously has plenty of it, but we're in agreement on Giannis for MVP. John Morant for rookie of the year. Locks. Those two absolute locks. locks. Defensive player of the year, Giannis versus AD. And I think Gobert might sneak his way in there as well. There's a GM poll or a coach's poll, excuse me, that the athletic ran the other day that, that actually had Gobert winning the award. So I, I think it's, you know, the odds say it's a two-man race. Maybe Gobert steals some votes. I'm, I'm coming around on Giannis. I think, I think Giannis is going to win, and I think he probably should win. I am also coming around on Giannis. I really thought, I thought from like a betting perspective, Anthony Davis made sense yeah. as like a value bet. I think he was close to three to one. But the numbers, they all just point to Giannis. His impact on the perimeter and in front of the basket mm-hmm. is just great. Help side defender. Um, I think the numbers just point in his favor, and Davis is really like if you if you really take a hard look at like Davis's like the mm-hmm. advanced defensive metrics on Davis, they aren't really that good this year. And I thought he would I thought he would change that at some point, but they're just you know like they're actually in the plus. Like mm-hmm. teams are score two more points per 100 possessions he's on the court. It's hard to give a guy defensive yep. player of the year even if there is some noise in those numbers. Exactly, coach of the year. Seems like Nick Nurse is becoming more and more of a lock for that one. Um, so real quickly, last thing, give me your most improved player. This is the one we've debated more than anything. Just need a name. Brandon Ingram. Brandon Ingram. I'm going bad out of bio. All right, that'll wrap it up. Our inaugural show on Dash Radio's Nothing But Net channel. Make sure to check out rotowire.com where you can find all of our content, and we'll be back next week. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com